0: The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harrah's Resort SoCal in 2024.
1: I'm Anne Do in Vietnamese. It's Do Bao Anh. And I work at the Los Angeles Times. I just started as a community engagement editor. I've been a journalist there for a 11 years and i've been working in newspapers for just over 30
0: years welcome to the vietnamese i'm your host kenneth wynn being part of a culture of nearly 100 million vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain proud history and privilege join me as i highlight and explore the vietnamese experience from all of congratulations on that appointment uh, and thank you for coming on the podcast
1: thank you so much to you and to our audience
0: We share a a little legacy, a little history, you and I. Um, Our parents uh, actually knew each other in, I think, Port Arthur, Texas, when they all first came to the United States. And my mom said, your family's just a wonderful group of people. And um, she says, hello, if you're, I I don't think your your father's still around, but if your mother's still around.
1: Thank you so much for those memories, you know. The world of the, the Vietnamese refugees is huge yet intimate. There's a connection everywhere, and we're all linked somehow. It's a beautiful, full circle kind of experience daily in our lives, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: Your father was in the business, the news business. Um, How did he get started in the U.S.?
1: My father started Báo Việt, Người Việt Daily News, in 1978 when I was in grade school, and he had been a war correspondent in the home country, and he always met to continue newspapering. In the early years, we arrived in 1975, along with the first wave of immigrants. He started working as a social worker. And also spent time wallpapering, but, you know, the passion for journalism
0: endures. Do you remember sort of how he got started? I mean, you just don't cobble a piece of, you know, like you don't bring writers and all of a sudden, you know, you have a newspaper. I mean, do you know the steps that it took for him to create this uh, newspaper? It was a daily, right?
1: It started out as a weekly Ken, and then twice a week, and then four times a week, and eventually to seven days, and it still publishes. He saw a big deed to help refugees how to restart their lives, and so he began writing these stories about how to open a bank account, how to take your driving tests at the DMV. Wow what is it like to register your school um, and your children at that school? How do you attend a PTA meeting? Just the basic building blocks of a new life. And then he started also giving stories about what was happening back in Vietnam, all across Southeast Asia. And then the price of a kilo of rice because the Vietnamese coming here Continue sending back money to those that we left behind, and just to tie together all of the pieces between the old world and the new world. And in those early days, you know, we didn't have Vietnamese font or Vietnamese accent marks on the typewriters. And so he inked every story by hand.
0: When you were watching him grow up, Did you think that you would want to be in the news business one day?
1: Absolutely. It caught me right away. The fact that I'm so poor at math and failed to be able to solve an algebra puzzle even to this day, I think that would take me longer than just writing a term paper. So I decided long ago, in grade school while watching my dad that yes i would go toward writing as a career so you know in my senior year of high school i dropped calculus because for me i didn't see the point
0: point. Uh, and that's a such a blessing to know what we want to do so early on in life right
1: thank goodness
0: yes yeah. And, and what kind of things did you sort of have to navigate through um, in those early years trying to figure out, like, where you're going to be placed in the world of newspapers?
1: So in those days, newspapers were still in the heyday. The readership was huge. And um, I really like adventure. I don't like staying in one place. So I was open to going in. Anywhere around the U.S. or around the world in college. And I started traveling quite a bit while an undergraduate. And um, I knew that I would go out of state after I graduated. And I am up in Dallas, which is where our family lived in the early refugee years. So back to those inevitable Texas roots,
0: just like you. When you had sort of mentioned this to your dad, I mean, was in support of your journey? Yes.
1: Thankfully, I have one of the rare fathers who is very open minded in terms of our career and what we would like to explore. It was a little harder for my mom because she saw how tough it is to lead a journalist's life. The money isn't the way it is when you're in medicine or when you're in the law, right? Which is why so many of our parents across Asian cultures sort of steer us toward those professions. But, um, you know, I'm pretty firm in knowing what I want and uh, just figuring out a way to plow toward
0: it. What do you think you learn the most watching your father?
1: I think it's compassion. You know, no matter what job you're in, who you mingle with, what station, what status in life you have, compassion is a gift that we can offer to others. It's also something that we welcome and grow and just bloom so much given
0: it. Uh I wasn't expecting that answer. I was expecting something more technical, something more you know, along the 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 lines of some newspaper sort of like way to do do life, but compassion is is such a interesting answer that you bring. Why do you think he sort of because i think when you are in the news you can go so many different ways and I, it's one of my questions later on uh, in the in the, that i prepared but I, I i imagine that newspaper people who who own newspapers or who acquire newspapers could be business people with with an agenda or people who are out to sort of like get their message in in a way and when i heard you answer with the word compassion It makes me wonder why he became uh, somebody who's compassionate. And and, because that you know, it's just not something that I would just think of. And I'm thinking that maybe things happened to him along the way uh, in the newspaper journey that made him compassionate. Or was he just a naturally compassionate person?
1: And my father grew up in a very strict Catholic family where everyone went to mass every day and i feel that he absorbed so much through that experience but it's not just the teachings you know it's how you live your life i know so many people who chose their own form of religion and go to service no matter what type of service it is, but it's something as a routine. And you don't really listen during that moment in time. Your mind tends to wander. And I'm not in a position to judge others. I'm just saying what I have observed. In my experience, my, da- my dad believes that it's not just enough to absorb the words. You need to live it on a daily basis. And so he really wanted to find ways to connect people through compassion, through storytelling, through reporting, through, through leather work going about in society to build this paper, that would be, sort of a magnet to unite all manner of humanity.
0: It reminds me of my father and his Catholicism. Uh, he also went to mass daily, twice a day, and uh, it was a it was a hard thing to be living it, and it was easy. I think he was somebody who went through the motions and thought about the motions. It was harder for him to, to actually live it, my father. and But in that, I also recognize that, you know, being around him and, and allowing him to sort of be um, imperfect was, was also an interesting thing to, to witness in contrast to the religion, the, in, in contrast to Catholicism.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because... I don't think any of us lives anything perfectly. But the idea that you infuse a sense of what you learn about the world, about your chosen religion, about your lived experiences and the lessons gained from them, you infuse that into your daily 6 to 12 p.m., whatever your schedule is, 6 to 12 a.m. I think so many people share that in their own meaningful way. And by the way, you know, my grandmother, Banoy, went to Mass twice a day, and her kids were encouraged to do that. And my dad did go to Mass twice a day, many days but could not really stick to that schedule Um, most of his life in Vietnam due to all of his uh, social and societal activities. But later on in his years, he really explored religion to try to understand what it is that draws other individuals along their chosen path. And so he always told us, whatever religion you choose, that's your choice. You don't need to stick to what you were raised with. You know, we have so much freedom. And part of living in America is this beauty of that freedom. Go where your heart leads you or go where your mind leads. is drawn by pure fascination.
0: I've always wondered what the process of building a new story, can you walk me through how a segment is produced from A to Z? I'll
1: try. There's so many types of stories. So each has their own pattern and we chase news or we pursue news depending on... At times, the urgency, say it's breaking news and there's a shooting. I've had to cover dozens of shootings in my decades-long career, and every one of them is different, but at the heart of every story is the human in the story, human or human's And so we would try to find out the motivation of the suspect or suspects and to tell the story of the victims. We may hear about the shooting, like the Monterey park shootings that started off our year through all the online activity. It's going on Twitter right away. You know, you, you hear about it when you make your rounds calling all the police stations. And that's the job of the cops reporter. And there's breaking news alerts on television, on radio, everywhere. But I actually heard about that the night it happened before. King mm-hmm.
0: And
1: um, I messaged my editor at around 11 p.m. And I said, do you want me to go with- there right away specifically going to monterey park and he said you know we have several reporters on the scene already they were called because they live physically closer to the crime scene and a speed is paramount right so he said just go to sleep and we'll want you to be ready as early as possible in the morning. And then, you know, we'll give you guidance about where to go. And so right away, I started rearranging my bed plans with my family. And knowing that, you know, uh, and um, going over to my mom's house and doing all of our uh beautiful annual rituals would have to take a back seat. and yeah, I'm superstitious. So I was worried yeah. about like, gosh, you know, what kind of luck are we yeah. bringing? But, you know, ultimately you're trained to do this and you have to switch your mindset. So I got things in order, prepared um, the leasy envelopes, double-checked them, packed all my stuff into the car, got my reporter's notebook, recharged my phone, packed several different chargers, and, um, you know, went to sleep at around 1 a.m. and got up at 6 a.m., and then updated myself on the news that evolved overnight, the number of victims shot, The number of victims who might have died, read our updated reports on latimes.com, and then started calling like Asian community sources that I know to find out if they've heard anything. And uh, went over to my mom's house with family members and, you know, our dog. And then worked from there and then drove out to different areas from there to get live quotes. Because one of the most startling things that happened is that this is on Lunar New Year's Eve, right? And we really wanted to blend in the element of the holiday into the story, which is a major factor in reporting this story And I called around to so many people to try to find out, were you in the Monterey park area last night? Were you even in the San Gabriel Valley? What did you see? What did you hear? And how do you feel about it happening closely to the holidays? Does that kind of give you a basic idea of how we pursue things?
0: Yeah, it's very, very clear. And it, is not as technical as i thought it's much more human it's much more leaning into how people feel and how people think and the actual sort of like the tragedy is paired with some contextual cultural context um it's something I, I just didn't think about but when i'm reading things it's you know it just feels very organic and natural
1: So you brought up something interesting, Ken, about the technical aspects. We're really lucky to have a large crew of journalists on hand to pursue what would probably be the biggest crime story in our area this year. So we have on the scene photographers, videographers, uh, social media people journalists of all ages backgrounds and levels of experience so a lot of the technical nature is covered i at that time was assigned to asian american issues and so i need to focus our lens on the cultural implications Mm -hmm. and the emotions supercharge by this event and i'm really grateful that we have team coverage in order to sort of swarm the story and bring you every angle possible and to have like a package full of coverage images sounds that latimes.com readers can tap on
0: your new appointment um, as editor of a community engagement um, brings so I, I, what I've it gathered is journalists and journalism and the community of the people that you serve bringing that community closer how is that um, sort of what is the mechanical side of, of bringing the community and journalism and journalists together yeah,
1: I like the uh, the way you use the word mechanical. So ultimately, it's about interaction. You know, part of it is bringing our journalism and our journalists out into the community a little bit more to give a intimate, behind the scenes look at how we make, how we produce, how we tell, how we photograph, how we videotape stories and the thought processes that go into that, why we choose the things we choose, what we leave out, why we had to leave that out. What does our audience want to know more about, to read more about, to learn more about? We're always open to feedback and, um, you know, I think it's important to have a relationship with readers, viewers, and listeners, kind of like what you're building with your podcast. And um, so many people do not know a lot of details about the news gathering process, and they get very nervous when they approach for an interview and they're like, I don't know what to say. I'm not the right person to talk to you. I might not be so quotable. This isn't very comfortable. But you know, it's not root canal and <laughs> blessings for root canals, right? <laughs> but I I think that it could be a fun a comfortable and a revelatory experience. You know, if we have patience and we are full disclosure, sharing glimpses of each other's um, work lives, everyone has something fascinating. I have never met a boring person in my life. And I've met literally thousands of people that deserve to have their story told. And we cannot tell everyone's stories. We're limited by time, circumstance, those type of factors. But the more that we're able to tell, every extra story told is one more story told. And, you know, I think it's a joy and also a daily lesson in this type of
0: work. I have been paying attention to the way news is produced and the way news is brought to us. But, you know, as a layperson, somebody who's standing outside looking in, and I haven't really seen uh, other news organizations or not, I mean, not that I've been, you know, really focused on on seeing who's been doing this sort of interactive um exercise, but, Is this a relatively new thing in the news world?
1: I think probably the title is something new, but the ideal is not new. You know, the media exists to connect us to one another. It's one of the platforms in society, right? And the fourth estate. One thing that, our listeners may be more familiar with, is audience engagement. And that's through, a lot of it is through social media on multiple platforms. And not just Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You know, we have TikTok, we have Snapchat, we have Mastodon, we have YouTube, we still have Bing. We have so many choices and it's incredible yeah. It's enriching. And I think everyone has their preferred space. And I don't knock it. I welcome it. But we have a huge um, audience engagement team in the media world. Every newspaper has something assigned in this manner. And also every other types of media from broadcasts and uh, blogs Things like that. And so we wanted to extend that arm. I'm learning as I go along, but I have always been out in the community. You know, I go out every single week to events and am crushed when there are like three events on the same night that you go to. And you have to balance that with sort of your duties as a family member, right? And um, so it's just step by step. You know, I look at our growing, fast, fascinating Vietnamese community and the events and the opportunities for engagement are so innovative now. And the programming, the spotlight, the lineup, it's amazing, folks, with a lot of people whose stories are unheard. That's the most exciting part.
0: When I had started this almost three years ago, this podcast, I thought that I knew so many people and I thought I knew so much. And as I'm getting underway in my third year, I realize what a fool I am. I don't think I've even scratched a percent of the depth of the Vietnamese accomplishments, the excellence, the all of the work that the Vietnamese across the globe has done. Um, you know, I wish there were, I always say, 30 to 50 people like me doing these type of podcasts. And I always welcome, um, if anybody out there has dreams of becoming a podcaster, please reach out to me and email me because I will do my best to help them amplify the Vietnamese um, voices out there. It, it's, it's amazing what the Vietnamese and the Asian American communities been able to accomplish in these last few years.
1: I think that's really generous of you. And who knows, your very words could produce countless more podcasters and of different ages, too. You know, the Vietnamese talent is boundless, right? Yes. And I actually respectfully say fool fool is not the right word. You are an explorer.
0: Thank you. It's uh it's just curiosity that, that just, you know, it's a, a never-ending thing. Um, speaking of which, I uh, read that the LA Times has the most winning number of Pulitzer Prizes. I think it, it's either breaking news or overall. And I wanted to ask you, is that a, a thing of that comes from leadership or luck or some planned coordination? Like, why does the LA Times have so many... Pulitzer you think
1: well and that's a question I've never been asked before thank you so we have seven breaking news Pulitzers and the latest came earlier this month from winning the award for coverage of the all um racist audio leak at Los Angeles City Hall I think Among journalists, we always talk about how the three states with the most number of news every day, every week, every month, every year comes from California, Florida, and Texas. And so we're in the heart of everything at the LA Times. And there's so much that's happening and the audience wants to know about personal safety and the community's safety. And so we really send out so many reporters and all types of staff members to cover this kind of news. It's a blessing. And the amount of curiosity that is backing the news coverage You know, you have to have these questions in your mind as you're pursuing it to get the answers to your audience. I feel like, wow, it's a mystery unfolding before my very eyes and I'm learning how everyone solves it by working together.
0: It's not really leadership. It's more just the numbers game because there's just so much to cover. And the more you cover, the more opportunity leads to better coverage, better technical, um, you know, understanding the technical side better and just making sure that angles are kind of comprehensively understood better because of the sheer number of stories that are coming out.
1: Yes, but I can't discount the leadership because we have really experienced editors, many who have covered crime and other urgent news themselves across the spectrum, and from working at so many different companies, including the LA Times. So I think that informs our coverage. The editor I worked with had also covered ethnic communities and immigration, and so had been out chasing news like us, and has a wealth of sources that she shared with us. So if you share your resources and your sources, it just really helps improve your chances of illuminating what's happening.
0: You uh, have covered um, shootings, uh, a lot of them, and you've, you know, LA Times have done a lot of work with homelessness and the coverage of that. And these are two major problems I think the U.S. specifically uh, is dealing with. Um, You know, when I think of Vietnam, I don't think of homelessness or I don't think of shootings. Those two things really aren't happening in that society. And you can almost say that, well, that's weird because that's, you know, Vietnamese society is better in in that way than American society. Now, I'm not trying to get political, but I just would like to know... Do you see an end to those two things since you've been in the organization and in a place where you can study the the happenings of shootings and the happenings of homelessness? Are these things going to diminish over time? Are they sort of just here to stay?
1: I think they're um, the two biggest domestic issues in the U.S. today based on everything I read and also based on casual conversation with everyday people. Certainly in California, they're at the forefront. I spent about a year covering homelessness in Orange County and going to tent cities, encampments outside Angel Stadium in Anaheim, going to Federal Port, Where there's an assortment of lawsuits involving homelessness, going to motels where they have temporary housing for the homeless, and going to rehab and walking from neighborhood to neighborhood where unhoused people have crashed on friends' couches. Inside family members' garages or parked their cars in acquaintances' driveways. You know, I've seen layers and layers of how it is to be homeless. And I am not in a position to judge. Again, I'm grateful for all the people that are willing to share a slice of their life and their struggles with us and there's so much that we have covered but there's so much that we still need to cover
0: the issues are here and it just seems that they're compounding every day it doesn't seem like there's less shootings or less homelessness it just seems year after year after year it just keeps getting worse and you know as somebody who sits on the sideline like me i i just wonder about these two issues a lot and i read about it in the news and i'm so heartbroken to to see it escalate every and so that's why i'm asking you somebody who's really in the heart of this and and so knowledgeable about these two things are they gonna diminish
1: i think there are improvements in um certain areas you know A lot of our local politicians have put homelessness at the top of their agenda and are trying innovative ways, but you know, there are things that feed into homelessness. For example, that we also have to shine the spotlight in problem solving. For example, Foster care, the system of runaways, you know, human trafficking. People end up unhoused through all of these situations and it adds to the number of the homeless. When I was going to some of the camps at like 6 a.m. One day I tracked a federal judge who went out to observe the crisis up close. And he had an entourage of social workers, city council folks, therapists, county healthcare workers trailing him. And he stopped at many individual tents to ask people like, what are you going through and what is it that we can do to help you that you haven't been offered before? I heard people tell me that if they are not from Southern California, part of the reason they chose to come to this encampment in Southern California is because of the weather, Mm. right? It's gonna be hard to survive in New York City. Yeah. In Wyoming. And so that's one reason for the migration, But at the same time, there are huge numbers who are from SoCal because of the housing market. It's priced everyone out. We have so many separate issues that balloon and explode. And they all contribute to this crisis with shootings, you know, it's not just guns. It's childcare, right? Many children go home to empty homes. I see so many latchkey kids, there's nothing to do or else there's no supervision, delinquency, there's all manner of things i really really worry about all of these factors which is why you know we've tried to provide coverage on all of these outlying areas that build into the crisis
0: well it just confirms how bleak these these issues are sometimes you know and um
1: There's bleakness, but there's also a sense of community in the tens of thousands of people that have come together from literally all paths to rescue the unhoused, to help victims recover.
0: I follow news online sites like Jackfruit, and next shark and they're both uh asian american founders um and i find that they have they capture things that are relevant to sort of the asian american community and you know every now and then it's bigger picture stuff that they that they that they um capture but that takes up uh, quite a substantial amount of news space, or even like mentally for me, uh, I don't. I'm not paying attention to mainstream news as much, like New York Times or LA Times. How does that sort of change the landscape of mainstream news, like the LA Times versus Neck Shark or Vice or um, or Jackfruit?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to have all of those as choices, you know. We're news consumers, and it's like walking down the grocery aisle. The more drinks we Mm. can choose from, the more chocolate we can choose from, bring it on. I appreciate having all of those sources and resources. I think Next Shark and Jackfruit do a really good job of appealing to the youth audience. And presenting the information in a more um, visual way. I think it's cool to be able to say, I'm going to read the newspaper and now I'm going to listen to this blog. While I'm driving, I'm going to put on this podcast. And then while I'm having dessert and my lunch, let's check Instagram and look at Jeff. Route, and then, you know, let's go on Facebook and scroll through my feed and tap on Next Shark.
0: How do we, as the consumer of news, check the validity of the stories that are being pumped out? Because sometimes they're just capturing other news sources that are not at the level of uh, LA Times, New York Times, and they're just re- re- uh, rebroadcasting some things. And so think we, as consumer of news, we don't know what's really legit and not legit sometimes?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Ken. I would do um, my own private fact-checking after I read something that would be like, wow, really? Mm -hmm. And then just use some of your um, online sources if you want to do a quick check. Sometimes I make phone calls, but that's just the reporter in me. I think the average person may do a quick internet run and figure it out. I think regular consumers of news know more often than not when to question something. And um, people are smarter with how they deal with online information these days, because it seems that so many of us devote a significant part of our day to online connections.
0: Do you think that we have gone further from polarization or has it become more polarized uh, in terms of the left, the right, Fox News or CNN or these things to me now seem that there is uh, a different sort of uh, feeling versus four years ago. It, it seems to be kind of shifting with this idea of fake news or being polarizing. It People seem a little bit more sophisticated with the nuances. How do you feel about that?
1: I think people are smarter about what is being presented to the audience. They're more selective. Those who have their own loyalties, there's a segment that stay within those loyalties. There's a segment that's kind of exploring a little bit more. I think it's been extraordinary to see how mature the audience is now compared to say, a decade ago. You know, with the rise of so-called accusations of fake news like as reporters when we've been out on the scene we've been uh, taunted by that quite a bit and attacked for it and uh, questioned about it but i just try to deal with those things with patience and a sense of calm because I don't think screaming at anyone and throwing wild charges gets you anywhere. And the ultimate goal is to connect.
0: Right. What's the hardest part of the news business life for you?
1: I think the hours are constantly challenging, Ken, because, you know, doctors are on call and police officers put themselves out in danger. Crimes happen whenever they happen, and same with the news. You know, the news never slows, as I like to remind my mom. A lot of holidays, like we talked about before, become interrupted. A lot of vacations, a lot of dinner hours. The beauty is we're living in a society with freedom of the press, and I have so much gratitude for that. I also think it's fascinating to learn what makes people run, what motivates them, what influences them. And so, you know, it's okay if you get a call like at 6 a.m. saying, well, there's a fire last night and the apartment complex is almost 100% destroyed, and we want to know what happened to the people who live there. Can you go out? I don't immediately think of, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm barely awake, or how am I going to get my day going? I think about, look at how those poor people have been affected, you know, their lives, may have been upended by tragedy. And let's focus on humanizing what they have experienced in
0: that tragedy. That's your father's compassion shining through.
1: Yeah, that gives me food for thought. But I really feel that it's not about us. It's about the subject, the person or persons in front of us or even the subject matter. You know, I feel like I'm a spectator in the room. I ask questions, but people are also welcome to ask questions of us. And we're just trying to shine a light on what it is that they are enduring.
0: Do you ever go to Vietnam? I have been three
1: times. and had assignments there. Oh, really? But not lately, yes.
0: What? Uh, sorry for my ignorance, but what, what kind of assignments did you have there?
1: Like, um, you know, the anniversary of April 1975. And then I wrote a personal first-person return type of story. Things like that. I mean... I really want to be able to just travel the world, you know? Yeah. Like all of us, we're so curious.
0: Yeah. I mean, I imagine somebody with your experience in the United States and one day sort of Vietnam changes hands somehow and you're an instructor and you teach journalism at the college level, university level in Vietnam, I wonder, like I'm immediately thinking about like how that class would sound like because of the lack of, I don't know, freedom of expression and, you know, there's probably ways that journalism is carried out in Vietnam, but I, I wonder from somebody with three decades of experience in the US, how that would sort of transpire
1: Yeah, um, you're putting all sorts of images out there. I think that there are so many brave, dissident journalists, bloggers that are doing the hard work and speaking up for themselves as well as the people. And um, that is something to be admired and to be thankful for. I think if I were to teach that class, it would focus a lot on street reporting, but also, you know, being fair, being balanced, being creative, infusing images into your storytelling, and then also allowing the audience, the community to interact with us and experimenting with that.
0: When I look out into the landscape of mainstream news. And think about sort of the slim margins, dwindling ad numbers, and all of these implied sort of pressures that mainstream news seem to be uh, up against. Then I listen to what you're saying about you know the resources that uh, L.A. Times would have to to send technical um, journalists out to to each um, um, to each job site. How is it? And how is it that a news organization like the LA Times still has a sort of like this robust um, operation?
1: I think it's robust in creativity, in desire, you know, in intention, in just all those imaginative powers. But, you know... The Los Angeles Times, like all the big media companies across the US and across different platforms, in print, online, on the air, we all have been hurt by you know, trends in news consumption, right? And ethnic media, community media are challenged day by day to, by all of these factors as well. But we keep trying our best to do with, you know, I always remember being told this in uh, junior high school, do the best with what you have, where you are. And everyone, I think, tries their best. We, We just need to be more creative in the storytelling. And we're experimenting every day. I'm grateful for uh, the audience and want to help grow that audience. You see record news consumption in times of national and global crisis. Remember the first months of the pandemic? Yeah. Everyone was reading the newspaper, turning on the news. Just to find out, like, what is COVID? Yeah. How can we protect ourselves and what can we expect coming down the line and in times of earthquake wildfires national suffering climate crisis people are tuning in and reading we need to find a way to build that loyalty not just build the loyalty grow subscriptions you know I think it's sad and it's hurtful for me to get a message that says I don't have a subscription can you send me that story another way but it's just like you spend six dollars on your morning cup of coffee or gas, client, gas prices are astrom- astronomical now, and you need to go with the flow, information is a treasure that we all need to support and pay for.
0: I agree. that uh, It's a small price to pay. $4 here, $6 here. I mean, that's a cup of coffee every day for some people. And I think the amount of labor that it takes to bring news to to us to to consume is is so
1: yeah and i think that you know for many it could be a tax write-off but the thing is i have five daily newspaper subscriptions i read the vietnamese language press which has no paywall because there is not that business model yet i also tune into multiple TV stations, radio stations, and magazines every week. My friends are like, you have to read more novels. And I'm like, yeah, after I read the news, Mm -hmm. and the news is ever-changing. So, you know, you wake up at 2 a.m. and log in and try to find out what's happening across the pond. But it's fascinating to me, and you learn just so much about the nitty-gritty of the world.
0: If we were to sort of engage in an Instagram Live uh, event, um, how would we go about doing this? And is this something that the LA Times would be open for you to do?
1: Uh, Maybe. Yeah, I think that's a good idea that we definitely need to explore. I, I love interacting with the audience. If we can take questions or if there's, a community event built around your, your podcast. And, you know, I think we can brainstorm.
0: Wonderful. And I think if you were to come on to one of these uh, Instagram live uh, events with us, um, it would be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Ken. I love Instagram and, uh, you know, the possibilities, the worlds that it opens up to us. Yes. That it opens up to us and, I would love to um, be able to join that.
0: And thank you so much for spending this precious time um, with me today. And um, we will definitely explore this next uh, step. And I'm very interested in it. And thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much, Ken, for your thoughtful invitation. And I'm also daily sending gratitude out to our audience.
0: Thanks, Anne. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.